class. I've got 745 here on the clock. It is time to begin our Bible study. All right, well, you should have received your notes tonight. Hopefully you did, and you'll, if you're looking at them now, you'll see we are talking about the doctrine of covenant tonight. And we may be on this one for a little while because it's, it's a very big idea. It's a very uh, full and rich doctrine. It covers a lot of ground in both the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's all basically centered around this idea that God has entered into a covenant with his creation in which he has placed certain responsibilities on himself. He's placed other responsibilities on the partners, his covenant partners, specifically in the Old Testament, people of Israel. In the New Testament, of course, that gets revised and expanded to include the Gentiles who come to the covenant through Christ. Uh, and for these responsibilities, there are certain promises, certain rewards, which are assured. Some of them are unconditional, meaning that God is going to, or God has already decided to uh, accomplish certain things, do certain things, regardless of the actions or behaviors of his creatures. Other promises and rewards are conditioned upon the fulfillment of specific responsibilities. So this is a very big uh, doctrine. In some of you who went to Bible school, you may have studied this under uh, different terminology. Uh, the, some call it the doctrine of divine decrees. Some call it uh, the doctrine of the works of God. Some call it uh, election. Some call it other things, but I chose the word covenant because I believe covenant gives us just the best overall picture of how God relates to uh, his creation. It's not merely a fact of, uh, that he's the creator and he kind of sets everything in motion and then just walks away and does, you know, lets it go on its merry way and let it do as it please, uh, but that he actually has purpose. One of the scriptures you'll notice we reference quite often is found there in uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, which uh, I want to read a couple of verses there in chapter 1. Uh, we're going to read from... Uh, I really should just read the whole thing, but I think I'll just read the, uh, the verses here Verse 7, uh, and verse, let's say verse 8, which says, Which he has made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the good, his good pleasure, which he had purposed in himself. So if we look at that ninth verse, the mystery of his will, his good pleasure, and that purpose for which he uh, in himself created and uh, ultimately redeems his creation. Uh, covenant 
is that idea that God has uh, made a specific uh, promise and a specific purpose and has a specific will in mind for how he is to relate to his creation. Let's take a look at our notes tonight. And let's look at uh, God's relationship with his creation and with humanity is secured by a covenant of life. This covenant defines the terms and means by which God fulfills his eternal purpose in creating and redeeming his works. So that's what we're talking about there in Ephesians chapter 1. It's also covered in Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 11, and a number of other places. You, You can find this idea all throughout the Scripture, that God had a purpose in his creation, that he secured that purpose through entering into a covenant. I, I just want to just say, as a, as a, just a matter of uh, understanding, you know, God is under no obligations to us or to anything other than those obligations which he willfully and voluntarily chose to take upon himself. We cannot obligate God to do anything. However, God has chosen of his own will to do certain things and make certain promises and carry out certain purposes and uh, you know, we, didn't, we don't have any means of compelling that other than God's own faithfulness and God's own character, which will not let him fail to do that which he has promised to do. But that idea that God only is obligated to do that which he has freely will and, and willingly and voluntarily chosen to obligate himself to do. God is... You and I don't have the power to compel God to do anything, but we can trust, we can have faith, we can have confidence that what he has covenanted to do, he will do. Now tonight we're going to talk primarily about the history of the covenant and its different uh, uh, points of of emphasis in uh, the lives of certain people in the scriptures. And then in in future classes, we'll go into more specifics about the terms of the covenant, what are the promises, what are the rewards. So going back to Genesis, the covenant was originally entered into with Adam as the representative of humanity and consisted of the call to act on our part as image bearers of God within his creation and to fulfill our God-given mandate to make this earth a paradise of life. So you know the story. We've covered it in a number of classes prior to this one, how that uh, God made man, placed him in the midst of his creation, gave him the authority, gave him the power, gave him the promise of eternal life, gave him the gift of the tree of life only placing upon him that singular uh, restriction. The only restriction he made 
was to not partake of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he gave man specific responsibilities. That responsibilities included caring for what God had made and uh, bringing the rest of God's creation into, uh, into, the, uh, into the submission to and into the uh, potential that God had placed uh, in it, within it, bringing it out, making the earth fruitful, making it bountiful, making it a true paradise. And this, this involved, of course, a lot more than we can really cover in the opportunity we have to speak with you tonight. But it was not just about the world and its physical aspects, but the spiritual and the moral as well, a place of love, a place of holiness, a place of liberty, a place where all of God's creation could uh, reach its fullest God-given potential without the brokenness, without the devastation, without the division, without the chaos that sin uh, creates and sin brings to, to any system or to any place and any person. And so this covenant of life, this covenant of uh, making the earth, you know, as it is in heaven, right? Let it be, be on earth. That's uh, an aspect of that covenant that's right there in the Lord's Prayer. It's, it's to take all of the uh, qualities and the, the beautiful characteristics of eternity and bring them into the world of time and space and matter and, and to make heaven and earth uh, sort of overlap and so that uh, all of God's creation can enjoy the blessings of life. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That's from the first chapter of John. All of this idea is encompassed in this initial covenant-making uh, uh, relationship that God had with the first Adam and, the, and of course, Eve. And, and when we think of all the potential of what that covenant, had it been uh, observed, had it been adhered to, had it been kept, what a different world. I mean, actually, I don't even think we can imagine. I don't think we can really even understand how different things could have been had, had you know, humanity gone a different direction. But of course we didn't. God knew that. And when Adam fell, he did not invalidate the covenant. God could have said, okay, that's the end of it. You couldn't handle it. Uh, you know, I'm going to move on to octopuses or whales or whatever other creature he wants to work through. But he doesn't. He uh, graciously, redemptively had already prepared uh, an aspect of the covenant to deal with man's fall. Before the foundation of the world, the lamb was slain. He had already prepared a way for the covenant to go forward even though man failed, Adam failed in the very first opportunity that he had. And so that is the basis. That's where this covenant of life was created. And that from that flows everything else that the scriptures have to teach us and tell us 
about this about this covenant. All right. So what? How did God salvage the covenant? God chose the seed of the woman. Remember that promise from Genesis chapter three: the seed of the woman to be the agent of redemption, to bring humanity to a place of reconciliation with God. So Adam falls. Uh, Adam and Eve fall. They fall together. They they co uh, participate in the fall of humanity. God comes. We see the first aspect of the failure to keep covenant with God is a curse that comes upon humanity and upon the earth, the curse of death and decay, the curse of, uh, of uh, you know, the, the curse of the physical breakdown of, of the environment and of, of human nature. But God speaking even through that curse uh, reveals a hint of what is to come. And that's in Genesis 3.15. That even though the covenant now has to go through a different path, that it will still ultimately be repaired and reconciled. And life will eventually uh, overcome death and the curse of sin. And that path of redemption will begin with the seed of the woman. And we see that uh, in a very uh, literal sense as the next chapter records the birth of Seth. And the comment there is made at the end of chapter 4 of Genesis that after the birth of Seth and, and his lineage and his sons and daughters, that men began to call on the name of the Lord. So you can, you can see that redemptive path already beginning to bear fruit. One of Seth's descendants is a man named Noah. And God makes a covenant with Noah to preserve the human uh, race, the human species from extinction. God makes a decision to wipe out all other uh, human beings and start again with Noah and his family and his children. And that covenant's called the, uh, that you, that's the one that's uh, given the sign and the seal of the rainbow in the sky. Uh, God's promise that uh, he will never uh, destroy the world by water, by flood again. And through Noah's line, through Noah's family line, the redemptive promise of the covenant is maintained. And you think how close the call was there. We sometimes wonder, maybe ask ourselves, why would God um, make such a drastic decision? Why would he destroy all of human beings? But uh, I think we have to look at it sometimes uh, we have to look at it, I think, from a, the perspective of what if God doesn't act? What if the light of the knowledge of God and truth is allowed to be extinguished? Uh, and the covenant uh, seed promise come to an end. So sometimes God has to intervene in drastic ways to make sure that the covenant does get fulfilled. 
Uh, remember, it's not simply the things that God does, but it's the human responsibility and human action that sometimes triggers different aspects of the covenant. All right, so the covenant uh, from Noah, uh, the next uh, person that gets uh, included, or the next person that's chosen, is God chooses a man named Abram. You find this story beginning in Genesis chapter 12 and goes on for a number of chapters. And uh, we see a couple of aspects of the covenant are, are highlighted in the life of Abram. One of the things we see here is that God, you know, previous to this, has been working, I guess you could say, through all of humanity. But here, he takes the opportunity to confine the covenant or limit the covenant to one family line, the descendants of Abram. Uh, this, you know, we, we can kind of question, I don't know if anybody really has ever thought about this before. I think we'd all, uh, I think we're all familiar with the story of Abraham, but this decision that God makes here to take the covenant and direct it through one particular family, one particular line of that family, not even all of Abraham's children, but one specific child, the child of promise, is a very pivotal moment in the, uh, in the history of the covenant and what God, is, what God is up to. And we know the story of Abraham is based primarily on, or God's decision here, is based primarily on the faith that Abraham displays and, and has in God, as he puts it on display here in Genesis chapter 12, in taking his family and taking himself uh, out of the land of his birth, out of everything that he's familiar with, everything that he knows, and going to um, the place that God would show him, and separating from his kinfolk, and doing all of those things makes it very apparent that, as Hebrews tells us, Abraham was all in. He was, he was fully committed to being the covenant partner of God. And he's, I think he might be the only character, the only character I can think of off the top of my head, who was actually called the friend of God in the Bible. And that tells us something very special about the character of Abraham. Uh, not only does God choose Abram, but God also chooses Canaan, the land of Canaan, as the place where the main events of the covenant will be fulfilled. He's chosen a family, and now he's chosen a particular part of the earth. We're not given any real specific reasons why God chose Canaan as opposed to some other place. Uh, but it's, it's made uh, abundantly clear when he speaks with Abram that it's not merely about just taking this family, but he attaches this family to this land. I know there's, I know there's a lot of 
controversy today. I was thinking about this uh, before class tonight. Uh, you know, I try to I try to keep up with the uh, events of the day and the events of what's going on in the world, and uh, it really uh, it's, it's a rare day that goes by that some major event or some major news story doesn't come out of this land of Canaan, this place in the scriptures that uh, becomes such a focal point for Abraham's family. And even now, uh, the enemy is, is doing all he can to prevent the fulfillment of those covenant uh, events in the land of Canaan. Uh, and we see later on God changes Abram's name to Abraham to signify that uh, through his seed the covenant would be one of blessing and fruitfulness. That, uh, that, that moment where God, you'll see this happen a lot in the history of the covenant, where God takes an individual and not only changes their destiny, but actually changes their name. And gives them, you know, it's sort of a, I guess it's sort of a, a, a way of expressing this sort of born again, this new creation, this new purpose that's so dominant in the covenant theology. And so Abraham becomes really, uh, in his life, the covenant begins to take a real solid form. Do I have any questions on Abram? Yes, Pastor. Uh, yes. You know, just thinking about Abraham, um, basically he was a pagan before he encountered Jehovah. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's yes. amazing to see that God in his foreknowledge knew that Abraham would trust him and believe him and he chose just an ordinary person out of a pagan family to follow him. I think, you know, uh, it's you an know, amazing story. Yeah. It is, and it's, I know it's very, it's sort of very easily, it's very easy for us on this side of history to say, well, of course, Abraham, of course, Isaac, of course, Jacob. Uh, but, you know, I don't know how many of us, <laughs> I'd like to say 100%, but I don't know. How many of us, you know, and if we're not talking about Abraham at 15 or 20 when he hasn't figured out his life yet. We're talking about Abraham at basically 75 years old. His, he is well into, uh, you know, well, I guess he lists the 140, so I guess we'll call him middle-aged. But, you know, he's, he's, he's established. He's, you know, he's got a, a life that I guess is as comfortable as you can have for that date and time. He's, he's a man of some means. He has, a, you know, he has a number of, uh, he's considered, I guess, uh, to be a wealthy man. He's well-known family. His family has, has a good position in society. And, you know, to just at the word, I mean, at the word of 
to your point, a God that, as far as he knew, was just one of, you know, a thousand gods or a million gods that were in the, in the, uh, you know, the pagan pantheon. To take that God at his, pro- at his word, trust his promise, not just pick up and leave, but go to a place where he's a complete stranger. And you've heard me say this probably in a sermon or two. You've heard me say this uh, maybe in a Bible study or two. By the time Abraham dies, the only piece of property he owns is his grave. You know, (laughs) the only thing he owns that the Bible testifies to, as far as the, the only piece of Canaan, the promised land, the land that he has been assured is his and his descendants forever. The only piece of it that he actually has title to is the place where he buries his wife and where he will be buried one day. That's a, it's an amazing story. It's an amazing display of trust. And that's why he is rightfully honored as the father of the faith and the father of the faithful because of that extraordinary commitment that he made to follow uh, this unknown God. Anyone else want to uh, speak to Abraham? Or to Canaan? Um, I have another question, if no one has one. Um, I'm not sure about this. A covenant is an agreement between one or more, between two persons or more. Um, mm-hmm. As the Jewish people as a nation really have not embraced Jesus as the Messiah, um, the covenant blessings and uh, everything that goes with it, the land, everything, is that still applicable? Although they have not kept their part of the bargain, so to speak. Uh, did I accidentally send you my notes for next week? <laughs> you, you've. Uh, well, we can leave it for jumped... next week, Bishop. No, no, That's no, fine. no, no. You've jumped on something that, and I'm glad you. I'm glad you picked up on on that, and I, I'm glad you. You know, we, we're going to talk a lot more next week about Israel and the covenant and where they fit. But because you've asked the question, and I assume others may have the same similar thought, or maybe they have the thought now. I mentioned at the beginning of class that there were some conditional aspects to the covenant and some unconditional aspects to the covenant. And if, you were, if we will read that passage again, Romans chapter 11, where God talks about, and really you can start back at Romans chapter 9, where, where Paul is talking there about this very question that you're asking. If Israel is the if, if Canaan is the promised land and, and the Jewish people are the, are the promised people and they have this special place in God, why or what happens if they do not fulfill their purpose? What happens if they do not embrace? And, and basically, I, I, I don't want to do the whole rest of the night on Romans 9, 10, and 11, but it would be good prep work for what we're going to talk about later for you to read those chapters because, and people get so, and this is the reason I want to go slowly and not 
just give a, a you know, a two-sentence response. It's because people get very uh, confused when Paul starts talking about vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. And, and, you know, we get into the whole predestination argument, which comes up in Romans chapter 8. We get into the argument in chapter 11, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. All Israel will be saved. You know, there's so much there. But to give you the shortest answer, when I know it's too late for that, but I'll give you the shortest answer I can give you tonight. Um, Israel has not yet seen the fulfillment of the covenant because of their unbelief. But God has assured, has promised, that he will restore Israel. That, you know, however we want to see that, whatever... I know some people want to spiritualize that, make you know, make Israel really something that's not what it is in Scripture. And we can talk about that at at a, at a later time. But the, prom, the the bottom line is God has promised that Israel will eventually, when the times of the Gentiles are over, when when this period of of bringing the Gentiles into the covenant has been fulfilled, that God will remember his promises to his people and they will experience the fulfillment of every one of those promises, uh, even though it's on a much delayed basis. And uh, certainly they have cost themselves and... uh, we can, you know, we can argue different points about that, but I think the point I take away from Romans, chapter 11 at least, is that we should not judge Israel for two reasons. One, because we have benefited. Their unbelief is what opened the door. Uh, their unbelief is what has allowed all of us to come in. So we have benefited, you know. And number two, we should not judge Israel because we are just as uh, vulnerable and just as, as likely to make the same mistake they did. You know, Paul says, if God has cut out the natural branches, what, what do you think he'll do? Or, uh, you know, what do you think he'll do to the wild branches if they don't produce the fruit? So uh, our fate may not be all that different from Israel's if we uh, make the same mistakes uh, of unbelief, of, uh, uh, of you know, abandoning our covenant responsibilities as well. So Israel's experience is both a blessing to us, but it's also a warning to us. And we have to take it in that regard. I, I don't know if I got to what you were wanted me to get to, Sister, but that's probably as far as I can go tonight. Yes, Bishop. Thank you. All right. So um, we'll look at God choosing Isaac, the son of promise, to demonstrate that the covenant would be based upon faith and not works. That's Paul's argument from Galatians chapter 3. And the idea that, you know, we know the story. I think we all are familiar with uh, God promising Abraham a child by Sarah. Sarah 
passes beyond the age of childbearing in the natural sense. They begin to, uh, I don't know how you, I don't know what, what we want to charge Abraham and Sarah with here, but basically they decide to take matters into their own hands. Sarah offers up Hagar as a surrogate mother for Abraham. Uh, and of course Ishmael is born and God, Abraham takes Ishmael to the Lord and says, uh, you know, we, I have a son. I wish I want him to live before you. Let him inherit the covenant. God says, well, that wasn't my plan. So I'll go ahead and bless Ishmael and make him a great nation. But I still want you to understand. And I know we, I know we read a lot into the story of Isaac about a lot of different things. And, and all of them are, are applicable. God wants to make one point very plain, and he makes it very plain in the story of choosing Isaac and not Ishmael. And that is this covenant cannot be fulfilled by human endeavor. Uh, It has to be by faith. Now we're talking, you know, 2,000 years or more before the the gospel of faith is going to be preached by the apostles, but uh, this lets us know that at the very, from the very beginning of the, the covenant, it was never a covenant of works. It was never about how human beings could do certain things, certain ways, follow certain traditions, have certain cultures, have certain ceremonies, have, you know, do a bunch of good deeds. It was never about those things. It's okay to do those things. We should do all the good that we can, but our covenant with God is a covenant of faith. And that is the, the message that God sends through the Son of Promise, uh, through Isaac, by miraculous birth from Sarah, even though she was you know, 90 years of age. Uh, the next time God chooses, he chooses Jacob over Esau. And he does this to to demonstrate that the covenant will be one of grace and not merit, not earned, not birthright, not something that uh, we deserve. Um, I think, again, I'm, I'm trusting most of you know the story of Jacob pretty well. I think it would be difficult. You know, I, when I read the stories about Jacob, I don't know, maybe I'm the only one here. I kind of find myself not really liking Jacob. <laughs> he's not a good guy. He's a liar. He's a thief. He's, he deceives his father. He conspires with his mother to defraud his brother. He, uh, you know, and, and, and he, you know, there's, there's sort of a, there's sort of a, a, a poetic justice in his comeuppance and the deception that he is deceived by with Laban and Leah and Rachel. You know, you kind of reap what you sow kind of moments. And, you know, I, 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 I question sometimes, you know, God, why, why this guy? You know, there, you, you know, there had to be better people than this guy. But, you know, here's God, kind of that Saul to Paul moment in Jacob's life where he has that meeting with God face to face, and you see a lot of parallels between Jacob becoming Israel and Saul becoming Paul in that face-to-face meeting that 
change of heart, that covenant of grace, God's grace, not the merit, not what we deserve, not what we can earn, but not what rights we're born with. Our covenant with God is nothing to do with our rights. It has everything to do with God's loving care and kindness and mercy and grace. And Jacob is the one who demonstrates to us that it is a covenant of grace. So God changes Jacob's name to Israel. If you ever wondered where the name Israel came from, it came from this, this mountain moment where Jacob wrestles with God. And uh, this separates him and his descendants as for a very special role. So from this time forward, we, can, we, you know, we start to speak of Israel as the covenant people. Um, and I know you asked a question about that a, a few minutes ago, but this is where Israel begins to take on that special significance. And if you notice the pattern here, God, you know, we've seen God making some choices here to limit the covenant in some ways. He chooses uh, Abram out of all of the people in the world. He chooses Isaac out of all of Abraham's children. He chooses Jacob out of Isaac's children. So God keeps narrowing the field, but then you see that through the narrowing of the field, um, the growth of the covenant, the expansion of the covenant within that particular family line or that, that, that those individual descendants. So at this point, after Jacob, it's no longer about God dealing with individuals. You know, to this point, it's been individual responsibility. It was Adam. It was Seth. It was Noah. It was Abram. It was Isaac. It was Jacob. God dealing with individuals to make sure that the covenant continues and get passes, continues to be passed on. From this moment, it's no longer individuals, but it's the entire nation of Israel. Every Jew, every descendant of Jacob becomes uh, a, a joint heir, if you will, of the covenant blessing, of the covenant responsibility, and of the covenant promise. All right, so we see from within Israel, having selected them and chosen them as a, as a whole people, to be a kingdom of priests, to be his special people, his peculiar people, God then chooses Moses to define their peculiarity, their specialness, through uh, the mediatorial law. I know we spoke about the mediatorial law last week. I, I trust you remember that. But uh, God chooses Moses here to create a covenant of law for this specific group of people so that they can become, so that they have a, uh, uh, you know, the, the, mediatorial role of access to God through the temple, through the Sabbath, through the circumcision, but also that they themselves, through their own observance and keeping the law, become mediators for all of the world. So you know, Israel was chosen to be God's servant to uh, express the covenant responsibility and the covenant reward 
to all the nations, to be the light of the world. That was their designation before it was the churches. And uh, that these terms, these conditions, all of this is conveyed through this law that God gives, this covenant law that gives, God gives to Moses. And this, this is specifically what is referred to in uh, the New Testament as the Old Covenant. If you notice in the New Testament, um, get those terms Old and New Covenant to differentiate between the laws of Moses and um, you know, the, the, the laws of Christ, the laws of faith and love and, that we talked about. We don't use the term Old Covenant to refer to the promises to Adam or to Abraham because those promises were not codified in law. They were, they were promises that were unconditional and perpetual and eternal in their nature. A reason why we can use the term Old Covenant to refer to the law of Moses is because it was conditional, it was temporal, it was for a specific purpose, to bring Israel to Christ, to prepare them for uh, the coming of the New Covenant. And that's why we use that term, Old Covenant. And you, you know, the book of Hebrews makes this case better probably than any other place in the scriptures. So the next time we see we see a, a uh, expansion of the covenant is through David. God chooses the seed of David to be the royal lineage for the covenant king, the one who would establish God's covenant kingdom. So you all, I think, from probably familiar Psalm 72, 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God speaks to David, David offers, David feels a burden, David feels you know, guilty for living in a fine palace while the, the God of Israel still lives in a tent. He, he, he says, I want to build the Lord a house. God says, how about I build you a house instead? And that's where we see that promise that his seed, one of his line, will be the one who sits on the throne of God's covenant kingdom. And that seed of David promised, again, how often did the enemy try to prevent that particular aspect of the covenant from being fulfilled, even to the point of when Jesus himself was born, uh, inspiring the slaughter of all the children of Bethlehem. Um, this seed promise, you know, we have the three seed promises, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, and the seed of David. And all of these are covenant promises in the unconditional sense. These are decisions that God made about how the covenant would be fulfilled. All right, so we come into uh, the, the time of the prophets and God speaking through Jeremiah promises a new covenant that would bring all of the nations all the peoples into the kingdom of God. This, and we talked about that old covenant before, so now we're talking about a new covenant. God, once the old covenant has fulfilled its purpose, it will pass away, it will become obsolete, and it will be replaced by a new and permanent aspect of God's covenant, an inward 
change. The writing of God's will, God's law, God's holiness, God's purpose. Remember what we talked about the opening of class in Ephesians chapter 1. The mystery of his will. The good pleasure of his own special purpose. The things that God had already decided to do in his own heart, in his own mind, before he even created the world. This new covenant would be the fulfillment of those things. This would not be tablets of stone. It would not be declarations of faith. It would not be articles of confession. It would be God himself dwelling not in houses built with hands, but in the human heart and in the human mind, bringing his purpose and bringing his pleasure to fulfillment. All right, so we see that God chooses a woman named Mary to be to fulfill the promise of the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David. This woman is chosen to be the mother in a miraculous way of the covenant redeemer, of the one who would make the covenant complete and fulfill uh, all of the aspects of the covenant, both from that which is God's responsibility, but more importantly, that which is our responsibility. And of course, we know that person. That person is Jesus. Jesus is the seed of the woman. He is the seed of Abraham. He is the seed of David. And he is the one who fulfills the old covenant, inaugurates the new covenant. He is the one who makes good all all the promises of God, right? All the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. There is no aspect of the covenant that can be fulfilled outside of Jesus. Both on God's part, but also on our part. We cannot fulfill any of our covenant obligations unless we are in Christ. And God will not fulfill any of his obligations except through Christ. And that brings us back to that question uh, Sister asked earlier about Israel and why they have missed out. It's because they did not seek the fulfillment through Christ Jesus. Until they do, that fulfillment can never be completed. Christ is the one who fulfills our obligations through his sinless life, death, and resurrection. And he is also the one that will bring to fulfillment all of the promises of God. And we will talk in much greater detail about those promises and how they are going to be fulfilled in later classes. So, um, to sum it up tonight, uh, what have we learned? We have learned that God, from the beginning, from creation, has chosen to be in a covenant relationship with his creation, more specifically with the human creations, those he made in his own image. He has chosen to be in covenant, and by doing so, God of his own free will, of voluntarily and without compulsion, without being compelled, 
has obligated himself by his own word to accomplish certain things and has accomplished many of those things by choosing human individuals to partner with, to covenant with, people like Adam, people like Seth, people like Noah, and Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and David, and Mary, and of course, Jesus Christ. This divine human covenant, this this, it's more than a contract. It's more than even a relationship. It's a divine sanctioned uh, uh, entity. This covenant has a life of its own. It's a covenant of life. And there is no life outside of it. There is no uh, blessing from God outside of it. There is nothing that, uh, that we can lay claim to by any right of our own. Only that which is from the faith and the grace that comes out of the love of God for us. And in Christ Jesus, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of David, all covenant obligations on both sides are fulfilled. All right, that's all I have for you this evening. Okay. Father, we give you thanks tonight for your word. Thank you for the covenant, the promises. Thank you for the one who fulfills those promises. Thank you for the one who brings the covenant alive in each and every one of our lives. We pray, O oh God, that this covenant would continue to grow and expand and include all of our children, our grandchildren, and all those that you are calling to your kingdom. We pray tonight for the special need Touch this body, touch this lungs, touch this man and give him a healing, a restoration, a reviving that can only come from the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless each one who's been on the call tonight. Watch over them, keep them safe, keep them holy. And Lord, until that appointed time, let us be about your business. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Everyone have a good night. We will speak with you again next week. This has been a production of the Lighthouse Church of God. Thank you for listening. We hope you have been blessed. You are welcome to join us for service every Sunday at 1030 a.m. For more information or to support our ministry, visit our website at www.lhcogfl.org. Or if you're in the Broward County area, we would love for you to visit our church located at 1890 Southwest 31st Avenue, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, 33312. God bless you. Until next time, this is the Lighthouse Church of God, lighting the way through the storms of life.